Welcome back to the second episode of Key Messianic Prophecies, a podcast brought to you by Telios, a private 501c3 nonprofit foundation dedicated to the research and accurate teaching of the Bible, founded by Bill and Jeanette Stewart in 2001. My name is Cole Burgett, and I will be your host for this episode, which will cover what is widely considered in biblical scholarship to be the Old Testament's first prophetic reference to Jesus, Genesis 3.15. And I will make enemies of you and the woman, and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is how the New American Standard Bible renders Genesis 3.15. Now let's get our context straight. The scene is the garden at the very beginning of the biblical story. Having created the man and the woman, God has given them dominion over the earth and has established the ground rule of not eating from a specific tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Should they eat of this tree, God tells them, they will die. Of course, we know the story. Enter the mysterious serpent, who through his cunning deceives the woman, suggesting to her that she will not die. So she takes the fruit, she gives some to the man who is with her, uh, and does not dissuade her, and they eat, and they disobey God. They immediately attempt to hide their nakedness and shame. God shows up, and in light of what they have done, he begins to pronounce judgment upon them. Genesis 3.15 occurs when God is pronouncing judgment on the serpent. The you in this verse is the serpent. So God says, I will make enemies of you and the woman, and of your offspring and her descendant. So, with just a cursory glance here, we're going to notice a couple of things. First, that God has set up the serpent and the woman as enemies. There is going to be this struggle between them. Secondly, that the strife between them will continue even unto their descendants. Uh, There is the language here of snake babies, it would seem. Uh, There are going to be snake babies, in a sense, and children from the woman who will continue to be locked in conflict. Now, it's worth noting that the word used here to describe both the offspring of the serpent and the woman's descendant in the original Hebrew is uh, zira, or seed. And this language, this notion of seed, becomes incredibly important throughout the rest of Genesis as well as the rest of the Bible. Anybody who has attempted to read the Bible cover to cover will know that the biblical writers are very concerned with this notion of genealogy. It's important to the rest of Genesis. It's hugely important in the book of Ruth. It's important to David's lineage. And of course, the New Testament begins uh, with one that links Jesus to these Old Testament genealogies in explicit detail. The idea being that the whole story of the Old Testament has built to Jesus himself, that this specific lineage has led to Jesus. What these very important words here in 3.15 do is give us a framework for following the Old Testament's narrative from this point forward. As we realize the story begins to heavily incorporate lineages, we realize just how significant these words are. And as Bible readers, we go through the text now slotting characters into these categories. As we keep reading, we begin to understand that those who are of the serpent's offspring are ones who align themselves with him, who stand in solidarity with his philosophy, which goes against God. Remember, at this point in the story, we are not told the serpent's identity. We're not told where he comes from or who he is, 
simply that he appears in the garden and through guile and cunning deceives mankind into rebelling against their creator. And we know that in just a few short chapters, the flood is going to come and wipe everything out. So by that point, as far as we know, the serpent is gone. The story has not revealed to us his true identity just yet. But we go through the narrative finding those who stand in solidarity with him, beginning with Cain. And what's interesting narratively is that he actually comes from the woman. Uh, and, and Cain's entire lineage grows to be worse than Cain himself ever was. Uh, so the narrative trucks along, and we, as the reader, are looking for this descendant of the woman who is going to do a kind of battle with the serpent, who's going to come up against uh, this, this lineage that aligns themselves uh, with the serpent, those like Cain. And this battle, the second half of 315 tells us, will go something like this. He, that is the descendant of the woman, shall bruise you on the head, that is the serpent's head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. We get this imagery here of a double death blow. The one who will destroy the serpent will do so uh, by essentially putting the serpent under his feet, but in the process he will be struck himself. Now that imagery, it's all going to come back. The image of death, the image of one who conquers the serpent by trampling on the head of his enemy. The reason Genesis 3.15 is so crucial to the biblical narrative is because so much of the imagery that will become integral to the plot moving forward begins right here with this verse. So we have Cain, who kills Abel, his brother. But in Abel's place, the man and the woman have another son, this individual named Seth. And Seth's line, we are told, is quite different from Cain's line in that they align themselves with God and this promised seed, this kind of messianic figure, and not the serpent. If you look at Genesis 5.29, for example, we see that Lamech, uh, who comes from Seth's line, says of Noah, his son, this one will give us comfort from our work and from the hard labor of our hands caused by the ground which the Lord had cursed. So you see this messianic expectation passing from father to son via Seth's line. Now, we learn later in the story, of course, after the flood, that Noah isn't the guy. He's not the messianic seed. He ends up in another garden, naked and ashamed, just like the man and the woman. And through one of Noah's children, who aligns himself with the serpent, this cycle essentially starts up again. But God's plan to bring about the promised Messiah goes on. And the story follows this lineage through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, and so on. And so the Bible's plot, in a nutshell, is found in Genesis 3.15. We go through the text looking for this promised Messiah, and eventually we locate him in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself is even going to rely on this text to make certain points in the Gospels. Remember the language that Jesus uses in Matthew 12.34 when the Pharisees accuse him of wielding demonic power. Do you remember what he calls them? A brood of vipers, or snake babies. And he uses the imagery of the tree and the fruit. Or how about in John 8, 44, when Jesus tells them that their father is the devil? See, when you're familiar with the Old Testament, especially Genesis three fifteen, so much of the New Testament really comes alive for you. And it has nothing to do with what a lot of modern biblical scholarship might suggest. Uh, if you simply follow the Bible's plot, if you keep it in its literary context and don't step outside of that, 
If you read it like you read any book or treat it as you would a film that you're watching, you really begin to catch how all of this imagery comes back and where the characters are getting their ideas from. So I hope after listening through this episode, if nothing else, your interest in Genesis 3.15 has been piqued. If the only thing we have managed to do here is stoke your interest in this hugely important verse for biblical interpretation, then I would say we've accomplished our mission. We have barely even scratched the surface of the significance of Genesis 3.15. There is so much for you to read and discover on your own. And maybe this will encourage you to start reading your Bible again from the beginning and run the story forward in light of this promised seed who is going to defeat the serpent and rescue humanity from this plight they are now in after falling into sin. The scope here is the stuff of epic fantasy and great literature. If nothing else, it's a tremendous story to read and become invested in. I don't think you have to come to the Bible accepting it as being true. However, as you read the story, the truth claims the Bible makes regarding itself and the person of Jesus Christ being this messianic figure are, I believe, undeniable. Well, to wrap up, let me plug a resource for you. There's a very good book out now by Dr. Charles Bayless, professor of Bible exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary, and that book is called The Serpent and the Woman, The Biblical Adventure. You can purchase a hard copy on Amazon, or you can download it for free via thebiblicalstory.org. And essentially, this book is a kind of narrative walkthrough of the biblical story that does a tremendous job of helping readers see the significance of Genesis 3.15 and the two lineages, one being of the serpent and the other being of the woman, and how the dueling seeds here culminate in Christ. Again, digitally, these are free resources that I uh, certainly encourage anyone listening to to take advantage of. Uh, Thank you for joining us for this episode of Key Messianic Prophecies, and we will continue our study in the next episode with Genesis 9, 25-27.